looking through uh, Luke chapter 18 uh, not too long ago, I noticed a pattern that Luke had put together for us, and we're going to try and look at that this morning, and that's the reason for the title, um, God Doesn't Save Blind People. And when you first hear that, it might sound like, well, that's just not right, and that's just not fair. But before I start, I guess I just want to say that um, a lot of times as I get older, I don't feel like I know the best way to preach the gospel. And it's not that I don't understand scriptures. It's not that I don't believe. I believe more than ever. I understand. I continue to understand more and more each day. And it touches my mind. It touches my heart. And it convicts me more and more. The problem is the more I understand, the more helpless I feel. The more I understand, the more mercy I think I need. And the more I understand, the more compassion I, I desire. And the more tolerance I need from my God and the more favor I need from my God. What I guess I've come to a conclusion about reading more and more of the gospel is I really am absolutely undeserved of all that God has given me. I really do need a Savior. And I don't need one for yesterday. Yesterday's come and gone. It's been taken care of. And we can go through all kinds of theological arguments on that. What I need is not a Savior for yesterday. I need one for today. And then when I go and look at the salvation, here's one of the dilemmas I see. And I think sometimes we tend to choose sides. You know, you... You see something you like better than the other one, that's the one you're going to choose. And here's the problem with salvation. God pleads with me. That alone I find incomprehensible that God would plead for me to come and obey him. We're talking about God and me. Yet at the same time, I can see God also demanding my obedience he demands my obedience, and he constantly pleads with me to be saved. And you look through scripture, and it's all the way through the record. You go look at the, very, you know, the story of Cain and Abel. Before Cain slays Abel, when his sacrifice is unacceptable, God kind of pleads with him, doesn't he? Change, Cain. You've got a chance now. You see it happen in the preaching of Noah, with the preaching of Moses. You see it with the prophets, with the apostles, and with Christ himself. So I need saving. I need saving a long time ago, didn't I? When I was a boy, I was baptized. But I have need to be saved each and every day since then. And I stand in the grace of God's salvation. I need to be saved on a daily basis. I depend on Jesus to make my life real, to make my life secure, to give it purpose and hopeful. But I try to remind myself each and every day that I am absolutely worthless. Lord, we have a song in our book that they change the words to, and I, I hate the change. It's, we, it says, for such a one as I, but if you are old enough to remember the old version, it said, such a worm as I. We change that because we just think more of ourselves than I think we really ought to. The good news is he loves me. The good news is for God so loved the world, and that includes Mark, that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So when we go through Luke chapter 18, I want you to keep that in your mind, everything I just said, because I really think 
That's what Luke wants us to see. Luke wants us to look at our, we're going to look at several stories here of several different people. One's a parable. Others are actual events that take place. And in each case, he wants you to see not only the blindness of so many of these people, but also the blindness that we might have. When we actually seem to think that we deserve more than what we get. We live in a world that tempts us to be self-sufficient. I want to be my own master, my own redeemer. And we're not so bold to boldly say out loud these things. But do we plant in our heart that you are nothing outside of the arms of Jesus and outside of the love of God? Luke puts these stories together in Luke chapter 18, and I believe the Holy Spirit is trying to penetrate my heart and your heart with these stories, our thick skulls, and teach us what faith looks like. Faith is just such a generic, nebulous word in most Christian circles. But this is the Holy Spirit through Luke, through the life of Christ, trying to teach us what faith actually looks like, if you really have faith, and also what faith does not look like. And the hard part is that we might be blind ourselves and not see the truth. And that should cause you to be a little nervous. And here's another thing. When you're going through, if you have Luke 18 open already, and you're looking at the headings of each story, you're surely familiar with these. In each one of these stories, except for the actual blind man, everybody's blind, except for the blind man. Not only that, the ones that fail in Luke chapter 18 are the followers of God. The ones that chose to serve God, the one that chose religion as their path, those who should have been able to lead others to truth, they themselves are blind, and they don't see it, obviously. They're blind unless somehow they can open their eyes. And as long as you're blind, you can't be saved. If you think that's a bad statement, go back and read John chapter 9 and read towards the end. John chapter 9 is the story of another healing of a blind man. And at the end, he says, since you claim to see... Your sin remains, because in truth, they were blind. So Luke starts with a parable, the first, and it's a great first story to start out this section. And it's going to guide us through everything else that's in Luke. Everything that's in, well, chapter 18, anyhow. And it's the story of the tax collector and the Pharisee. Because all of a sudden, we need a gospel, but we need to be able to see the truth. And when you see the gospel, the story of the, blind, of the Pharisee and the tax collector, you got to think about this, because the two go up to the temple to pray and, and read the prayer of the one and compare it to the prayer of the other. You know, the first thing he says, he says, a certain city there was, uh, I'm sorry, we're starting down verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Twice a week I fast. I pay tithes of all that I get. 
but the tax collector standing some distance away was unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God be merciful to me, the sinner. And the conclusion, Jesus says, is I tell you, this man went up to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You don't have to be a genius to look through this and know who the good guy is and who the bad guy is. Although 2,000 years of Christianity, maybe we have it backwards a little bit. Because the Pharisee in their book is the good guy. He is... and. Stay with the words. I realize what it says in Matthew 23 about a lot of Pharisees. But Jesus accuses this man of no sin. He says he was righteous. He said he did the right thing. He said he wasn't like other people. And we have no reason to assume that he's lying about it. We want to attack the Pharisee because we know how many were hypocrites. And we could talk about this particular Pharisee even and talk about his lack of love or compassion or failure to be righteous, at least towards this tax collector standing at his side. But Jesus never says he's false. But here's the problem, how the Pharisee sees himself. The Pharisee sees himself as a man who needs no redemption. Read the words, he has redeemed himself. He prays to God, but he's not dependent on God. He's got it all together. He knows what's right. The tax collector, on the other hand, has absolutely nothing to offer God. He can't even bring himself to look up to God. Matter of fact, he bows his head. It's the first sign of actual worship. Do you know what the word worship literally means, both Greek and Hebrew? It means to bow. And he can't even bring his head up to look to heavens. First sign of worship we've seen in these two prayers. And what does he do? He begs for forgiveness. And Jesus ends with these words, the one who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Here's actually a more literal way of translating that. <clears throat> a little more uncomfortable way though. Jesus says to, about him, all who exalt themselves will be humiliated. Uh, nobody wants to be humiliated, do they? You don't mind being humble, but you don't want somebody to humble you or humiliate you. And he says, but the one who humiliates himself will be lifted up. Did you ever see it as a challenge to humiliate yourself? But when you witness the example of what Jesus is displaying there between these two men and the way they're praying, this tax collector humiliates himself. He bows his head, he beats his chest, and he begs for mercy. From that statement forward, we have story after story of people who exalt themselves and think that they have accomplished what they need to inherit eternal treasure and the good life here on earth. And the very next story after that that Luke collects with this is the story of the children. You know the story. The children come and, and, and they want a blessing from Christ. And the apostles themselves, the twelve, the inner circle, they say, go away. Get out of here. What are they saying? They, you don't deserve to be here. They reprimand them. And, and Jesus now has to not reprimand a Pharisee or a Sadducee. He has to reprimand an apostle. What was the problem? 
The problem is the disciples decided who was worthy and who was not. And they deserved the presence of Jesus. Even if you could say they had gracious hearts in their, in their, they felt they had a special place with God. They deserved to be at the head of the table. You know, in private, though, they always had those discussions, who's the greatest? You know, sometimes they thought Jesus wasn't listening. He was always listening. So Jesus says, permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And, you, you know, we have this spiritual idealism. You've got to go slow when you get to that verse because read that last part again. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Think back on that prayer of the Pharisee or and the tax collector. Now Jesus is speaking to his 12 disciples, and at this point, they have failed the test. Peter, Andrew, James, John, you name those 12. At this point, they just don't see it. They don't understand. They are blind to their own realities. They are blind to their own emptiness. They are blind to their own dependence. To receive the kingdom of God is actually to throw yourself upon God's mercy because you don't have the power to accomplish it on your own. You don't have the holiness. You don't possess the righteousness. And I don't deserve to be saved. So quickly from that story, we go on to another one. That is, this, is, this is probably in at least Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if I'm right. And Luke places it here among all these stories. The rich man. And rich people, well, they're kind of they're kind of easy to despise, easy to loathe. And you know who the rich people are in this world? Whoever has more than me. So if we go out there and compare vehicles, whoever has the best vehicle, that's the rich one. But then all of a sudden somebody will drive past us in a better vehicle than that, and that's the rich one. He's religious. And there's no indication in this story about this young rich ruler that he's ever done anything evil. We, you know, like, you know, we always say, well, they're rich, well, they must have done something bad to get their money. Well, that happens many times. But there's no indication that he has any action of, of ungodliness in his life. And then he asks the question, and his question is both beautiful and at the same time, words of a blind man. He starts out, and it sounds really nice, good teacher. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Unfortunately, we've, or fortunately, I should say, I'm glad you've all read this scripture many, many, many times. But sometimes when we've read it so many times, the freshness of it is gone. Because he says, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Good. That's kind of a nice thing to say about Christ. And, you know, the word means good, just like it would in any other language. It also means upright or honorable. And it's as if he is introducing his question with his statement, Rabbi, you are a successful man of faith. You've accomplished what God would have us to do. Tell me your secret. How do I earn, how do I win eternal life? It seems like you've won. What should I do? You understand now why Jesus you know, rebuffs what he says. He says, no one's good but God alone. 
In other words, there are no deserving people. You want to understand how it is that you can deserve eternal life. You want to understand how you can do the works to gain eternal life. You want to see how you can inherit eternal life. There are no good people. No one is good except God alone. Yeah, Jesus, he does qualify, doesn't he? Because in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I don't think this man understands that he's speaking to God in the flesh. He just thinks he's standing before a successful and honorable rabbi. But you cannot do what restores hope. You cannot restore the relationship, the fellowship, or the godliness. Those things are all in the realm of God, not man's domain. Interesting enough, though, Jesus at that point decides, okay, let's work with the answer. And he starts quoting, I don't know if he's quoting from Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy chapter 5, but he, he starts quoting the Big Ten. He can't even get halfway through the list, and the man interrupts him and says, I've always done that. I've been doing these things since my youth. It just doesn't seem like enough. There's the first admission of truth in the man's heart. He says, I've always done the right thing. I've always been living the life that everybody's supposed to live. But in my heart of hearts, it just doesn't feel like enough. What more shall I do? So Jesus tells him, sell, give, and follow. In short, Jesus is saying, you abandon the life that you created for yourself and now surrender to the Messiah. Those are tough words. And I wonder how long the man stood there with a stunned look on his face. Maybe his, maybe his hands trembled a little. Maybe his lips quivered. But sooner or later, he turns and he walks away. He walks away sorrowful. Because what Jesus was asking him was more than he was willing to do. Imagine being asked to abandon all security, all comfort, whatever position you have, and go out into the unknown following the Messiah. All of a sudden, you are not a leader, you are dependent. You are a follower. And that was more than this man could bear. So Jesus looks at the disciples and says, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. We stop on that one and we think, yeah, that's right. See, rich people are evil, rich people are bad. That's not his point. Because this man's problem was not that he was further away from the kingdom of God than any other lost person, but he would not give up his self-sufficiency. So Jesus says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. I always think that's interesting because there used to be a popular lesson saying, well, they had these little holes in the walls of the city of Jerusalem and, and, if, and they called them needles. And if a camel got on his belly and worked real hard, he could get through it. I don't know who the fool was or the liar that came up with that story. There is zero evidence archaeologically or historically of any such holes to torture camels with. But apparently it must have been invented by somebody who wanted to get that rich man in and said if he gets on his belly and he works hard and he struggles, he can make it. No, the word used here is a sewing needle. I have 
Don't know the Greek that well, but I've been told that Matthew uses a term that would describe a needle used for sewing leather, where Luke uses one that would be more like a surgical needle. That would make sense, him being him a doctor. It's a needle. It's impossible. They who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Take this all the way back to that prayer of the Pharisee and the Sadducee. Look at the apostles with those children. You'd think the disciples would have listened closely to this, because basically what Jesus is saying is, man cannot, God can. But Peter, same one who just got done with the others rebuking the children, blind as anyone out there, he says, behold, we have left our homes and followed you. He said to them, truly, truly, I say to you that there is no one who has left home or wife or brother or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive as many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. He says, you've left it all. Jesus says, don't worry about it. God will take care of you. I don't read what, between the lines. What's Peter really saying at this point? He says, look at our dedication, God. We've left everything for you and we followed you. In other words, don't we deserve it? It's not enough because you never deserve it. And Jesus had just finished telling them that the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. And here is Peter telling Jesus what a great act of faith he has performed. And even that's a lie if you really go through and kind of analyze the life of Peter. He never gave up his house. <laughs> Remember that early on? Jesus actually ate in Peter's house one night. Cured his mother-in-law that night. The house was still there. The wife was still there. Matter of fact, later on in the, in the early years of the church, Paul will talk about how Peter takes his wife with him when he goes preaching. What about that job? Well, he didn't give up the fishing that much, did he? It was more like a sabbatical, a, little, a couple of years time off, a temporary break from the normal. Proof of that is in John chapter 21, because in John 21, after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, what does Peter do that in John chapter 21? He goes fishing. He returns to his nets. Jesus says, no one who has left house or wife or brother or parents for the kingdom, they're not losing. They'll receive many times as much in this age and in the future. They get eternal life. So at this time, finally, in the, right here in this point in Luke, Jesus reveals the mystery of the gospel, and he tells them what matters the most. He tells them about the cross. He tells them about the grave, and he tells them about the resurrection. The problem is they're blind, and it makes no sense to them. Because the cross is God coming to your rescue because you can't rescue yourself. The cross is Jesus paying with his blood, our redemption, our salvation. The cross is God's way of telling us that we cannot accomplish life, hope, or salvation. And God died for us because there is no other choice. I've heard so many times people say, why did it have to be the cross? Why couldn't he have done it another way? Because we cannot save ourselves and we stand condemned. There is no other way. 
than for God himself to die for us. The cross is God's love seen in the ultimate giving of love. And only there brings about life. Then all of a sudden we go to another story. We're in Jericho now. The city of priests and the city of Levi's. If you didn't know that, that's what that is. It's sort of like a, a, a seminary town for priests and Levites. It's where they would live. It's where they would keep their families. It's where they'd get their training. You know, the story of the Jericho Road. That's, you know, the priests going back and forth from Jerusalem to Jericho to do their religious duties. It's a city of religious leaders. And Jesus is coming to town. And everybody wants to see the rabbi. They want to see this rabbi who preaches with fire and who heals the sick and casts out even demons. And they're lining in the streets. But in Jericho, there's a blind man. And apparently he's a blind man without friends because you just, we'll just read how they, they treat him. He finds no compassion in Jericho. He hears about Jesus coming. He's blind. So he starts yelling. I don't know how long this went on. It goes so quickly when you read the verse. That Jesus might have been at the other end of town, and he hears it, and he starts yelling. And what does he yell? Jesus, son of David, have compassion on me. Well, he has to keep yelling, doesn't he? Because he never knows when Jesus is actually going to be within hearing distance. And he keeps yelling, and he keeps yelling, and he keeps yelling. And what do his compassionate, loving, religious friends do? They tell him to shut up. They rebuke him, but he keeps on yelling and yelling and yelling. Jesus, son of David, have compassion on me. He wants compassion. He wants pity. What the city of Jericho, the city of religious men, were unwilling to give him, he begs Jesus for. He begs for compassion, pity, and mercy. So finally, Jesus arrives at that spot where he's at. And he says, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. When you put this whole chapter together, especially just starting verse 10 and going forward, what's transpired? We've had a Pharisee who was convinced that his own worthiness would get him before God, while the tax collector begged. We have disciples who thought they were superior to children, but the children were the ones who actually had the heart needed to approach God. And we had a rich man who wanted to accomplish heaven's reward on his own, but when he found out he had to surrender everything, walked away sorrowful. And then the disciples, they thought they were bringing their own lives before him. They thought, it's not our sacrifice, it's not our dedication good enough. And Jesus merely replies, God will take care of you. The cross is our hope, not your goodness, not my goodness, not our efforts, not our personal righteousness. God's love and God's death bring hope. And now in Jericho, we have a blind man. And he does what nobody else has been doing, except for the tax collector. He begs. A blind man who understands life and God more than all the people who had eyes in the story. He knows that he has zero to offer God. He knows he brings nothing. He, you, he can't barter with God. He begs and he seeks compassion and mercy. 
the blind man sees what nobody else in these stories were, could see. And today you got to ask yourself the question, what do you bring? What do you bring to God to offer him besides a broken life, a worthless treasure, and a desperate need for a savior? You hear something like that and might want to say amen. I don't know, maybe we need a special sign to let you have permission to say amen. But it's a truth that needs to rule your heart. Live not like you have something to offer God. But live knowing you have nothing to offer God. Live knowing that by grace you are saved through faith and that when you finally come to that realization, God can take your life, guide your works and your words and your actions. And God can create a heaven in your soul. But it's only when you open your eyes enough to understand that you need to embrace mercy. It's beautiful to be here with brothers and sisters and beautiful to understand that uh, you love the Lord. But may we never become so confident in our place with God that we actually turn from embracing mercy to standing in pride and confidence of deserving salvation. The gospel will not save those who have blind hearts. It never has, it never will. That may not seem fair to you, but it's the truth, it's the reality. So if you believe, and if you will embrace his mercy, that's why we baptize people, because you got to die. When you are buried in the waters of baptism, you're raised in the newness of life, and you are washed from all sins. But he does the work, not you. If that's the decision that you want to make, if that's the understanding of the depths of your heart, then we ask you to come now as we stand and as we sing.